Chapter Fifteen of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter Fifteen, consisting of. Arrival at Port Denison, Queensland. A lecture. Reminiscences of Captain Cook. Lecturing for charity at Cooktown. A happy escape from a coral sea. Home Island, Sunday Island, Bird Island. An American Pearl Fisherman. Jubilee at Thursday Island. A new ensign for the spray. Booby Island. Across the Indian Ocean. Christmas Island. On the morning of the 26th, Gloucester Island was close aboard, and the spray anchored in the evening at Port Denison, where rests on a hill the sweet little town of Bowen, the future watering place and health resort of Queensland. The country all about here has a healthful appearance. The harbour was easy of approach, spacious and safe, and afforded excellent holding ground. It was quiet in Bowen when the spray arrived, and the good people, with an hour to throw away on the second evening of her arrival, came down to the School of Arts to talk about the voyage, it being the latest event. It was duly advertised in the two little papers, Boomerang and Nully Nully, in the one the day before the affair came off, and in the other the day after, which was all the same to the editor, and for that matter it was the same to me. Besides this, circulars were distributed with a flourish, and the best bellman in Australia was employed. But I could have keel-hauled the wretch bell and all when he came to the door of the little hotel where my prospective audience and I were dining and with his clattering bell and fiendish yell made noises that would awaken the dead. All over the voyage of the spray, from Boston to Bowen, the two hubs in the cartwheels of creation, as the boomerang afterwards said. Mr. Miles, magistrate, harbour-master, land commissioner, gold-warden, etc., was chairman, and introduced me for what reason I never knew, except to embarrass me with a scene of vain ostentation and embitter my life, for heaven knows I had met every person in town the first hour ashore. I knew them all by name now, and they all knew me. However, Mr. Miles was a good talker. Indeed, I tried to induce him to go on and tell the story while I showed the pictures, but this he refused to do. I may explain that it was a talk illustrated by Stereopticon. The views were good, but the lantern, a thirty-shilling affair, was wretched, and had only an oil-lamp in it. I sailed early the next morning, before the papers came out, thinking it best to do so. They each appeared with a favourable column, however, of what they called a lecture, so I learnt afterwards and they had a kind word for the bellman besides. From Port Denison the sloop ran before the constant trade wind, and made no stop at all, night or day, until she reached Cooktown on the Endeavour River, where she arrived Monday, May 31, 
1897, before a furious blast of wind, encountered that day fifty miles down the coast. On this parallel of latitude is the high ridge and backbone of the trade winds, which about Cooktown amount often to a hard gale. I had been charged to navigate the route with extra care, and to feel my way over the ground. The skilled officer of the Royal Navy, who advised me to take the barrier reef passage, wrote me that HMS Orlando steamed nights as well as days through it, but that I, under sail, would jeopardise my vessel on coral reefs if I undertook to do so. Confidentially, it would have been no easy matter finding anchorage every night. The hard work, too, of getting the sloop under way every morning was finished, I had hoped, when she cleared the Strait of Magellan. Besides that, the best of Admiralty charts made it possible to keep on sailing night and day. Indeed, with a fair wind, and in the clear weather of that season, the way through the barrier reef channel, in all sincerity, was clearer than a highway in a busy city, and by all odds less dangerous. But to any one contemplating the voyage, I should say, beware of reefs day or night, or, remaining on the land, be wary still. The spray came flying into port like a bird, said the Longshore Daily Papers of Cooktown the morning after she arrived, and it seemed strange, they added, that only one man could be seen on board working the craft. The spray was doing her best, to be sure, for it was near night, and she was in haste to find a perch before dark. Tacking inside of all the craft in port, I moored her at sunset nearly abreast the Captain Cook monument, and next morning went ashore to feast my eyes upon the very stones the great navigator had seen, for I was now on a seaman's consecrated ground. But there seemed a question in Cooktown's mind as to the exact spot where his ship, the Endeavour, hove down for repairs on her memorable voyage round the world. Some said it was not at all at the place where the monument now stood. A discussion of the subject was going on one morning where I happened to be, and a young lady present, turning to me as one of some authority in nautical matters, very flatteringly asked my opinion. Well, I could see no reason why Captain Cook, if he made up his mind to repair his ship inland, couldn't have dredged out a channel to the place where the monument now stood, if he had a dredging machine with him, and afterwards fill it up again. For Captain Cook could do most anything, and nobody ever said that he hadn't a dredger along. The young lady seemed to lean to my way of thinking, and, following up the story of the historical voyage, asked if I had visited the point further down the harbour where the great circumnavigator was murdered. This took my breath, but a bright schoolboy coming along relieved my embarrassment, for, like all boys, seeing that information was wanted, he volunteered to supply it. Said he, "'Captain Cook wasn't murdered here at all, ma'am. He was killed in Africa. Her lion het him.' Here I was reminded of distressful days gone by. I think it was in 1866 that the old steamship Suchet, from Batavia for Sydney, put in at Cooktown for scurvy grass, as I always thought, and, incidentally, to land mails. On her sick list 
was my fevered self, and so I didn't see the place till I came back on the spray thirty-one years later. And now I saw coming into port the physical wrecks of miners from New Guinea, destitute and dying. Many had died on the way and had been buried at sea. He would have been a hardened wretch who could look on and not try to do something for them. The sympathy of all went out to these sufferers, but the little town was already straitened from a long run on its benevolence. I thought of the matter of the lady's gift to me at Tasmania, which I had promised myself I would keep only as a loan, but found now to my embarrassment that I had invested the money. However, the good Cooktown people wished to hear a story of the sea, and how the crew of the spray fared when illness got aboard of her. Accordingly, the little Presbyterian church on the hill was opened for a congregation. Everybody talked, and they made a roaring success of it. Judge Chester, the magistrate, was at the head of the game, and so it was bound to succeed. He it was who annexed the island of New Guinea to Great Britain. "'While I was about it,' said he, "'I annexed the blooming lot of it.' There was a ring in the statement pleasant to the ear of an old voyager. However, the Germans made such a row over the judge's mainsail hall that they got a share in the venture. Well, I was now indebted to the miners of Cooktown for the great privilege of adding a mite to the worthy cause, and to Judge Chester all the town was indebted for a general good time. The matter standing so, I sailed on June 6, 1897, heading away for the north as before. Arrived at a very inviting anchorage about sundown the 7th, I came too, for the night, abreast the Claremont lightship. This was the only time throughout the passage of the Barrier Reef Channel that the spray anchored, except at Fort Denison and at Endeavour River. On the very night following this, however, the 8th, I regretted keenly for an instant that I had not anchored before dark as I might have done easily under the lee of a coral reef. It happened in this way. The spray had just passed M. Reef Lightship, and left the light dipping astern, when, going at full speed with sheets off, she hit the M. Reef itself on the north end, where I expected to see a beacon. She swung off quickly on her heel, however, and with one more bound on a swell, cut across the shoal-point so quickly that I hardly knew how it was done. The beacon wasn't there. At least, I didn't see it. I hadn't time to look for it after she struck. And certainly it didn't much matter then whether I saw it or not. But this gave her a fine departure for Cape Greenville, the next point ahead. I saw the ugly boulders under the sloop's keel as she flashed over them, and I made a mental note of it that the letter M, for which the reef was named, was the thirteenth one in our alphabet, and that thirteen, as noted years before, was still my lucky number. The natives of Cape Greenville are notoriously bad, and I was advised to give them the go-by. Accordingly, from M Reef, I steered outside of the adjacent islands to be on the safe side. Skipping along now, the spray passed Home Island off the pitch of the Cape, soon after midnight, and squared away on a westerly course. 
A short time later she fell in with a steamer bound south, groping her way in the dark, and making the night dismal with her own black smoke. From home island I made for Sunday island, and bringing that abeam shortened sail, not wishing to make Bird Island further along before daylight, the wind being still fresh, and the islands being low, with dangers about them. Wednesday, June 9, 1897, at daylight, Bird Island was dead ahead, distant two and a half miles, which I considered near enough. A strong current was pressing the sloop forward. I did not shorten sail too soon in the night. The first and only Australian canoe seen on the voyage was encountered here, standing from the mainland, with a rag of sail set, bound for this island. A long slim fish that leapt on board in the night was found on deck this morning. I had it for breakfast. The spry chap was no larger than a herring, which it represented in every respect, except that it was three times as long. But that was so much the better, for I am rather fond of fresh herring anyway. A great number of fisher-birds were about this day, which was one of the pleasantest on God's earth. The spray dancing over the waves entered Albany Pass as the sun drew low in the west over the hills of Australia. At 7.30 p.m. the spray, now through the pass, came to anchor in a cove in the mainland near a pearl fisherman called the Tarawa, which was at anchor, her captain from the deck of his vessel directing me to a berth. This done, he at once came on board to clasp hands. The Tarawa was a Californian, and Captain Jones, her master, was an American. On the following morning Captain Jones brought on board two pairs of exquisite pearl shells, the most perfect ones I ever saw. They were probably the best he had, for Jones was the heart-yarn of a sailor. He assured me that if I would remain a few hours longer, some friends from Somerset nearby would pay us all a visit, and one of the crew sorting shells on deck guessed they would. The mate guessed so too. The friends came, as even the second mate and cook had guessed they would. They were Mr. Jardin, stockman, famous throughout the land, and his family. Mrs. Jardine was the niece of King Maliatoa, and cousin to the beautiful Farmusami, to make the sea burn, who visited the spray at Apia. Mr. Jardine was himself a fine specimen of a Scotsman. With his little family about him, he was content to live in this remote place, accumulating the comforts of life. The fact of the Tarawa having been built in America accounted for the crew, boy Jim and all, being such good guessers. Strangely enough, though, Captain Jones himself, the only American aboard, was never heard to guess at all. After a pleasant chat and good-bye to the people of the Tarawa and to Mr. and Mrs. Jardine, I again weighed anchor and stood across for Thursday Island, now in plain view, mid-channel in Torres Strait where I arrived shortly after noon. Here the spray remained over until June 24. Being the only American representative in port, this tarry was imperative, for on the 22nd was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. The two days over were, as sailors say, for coming up. Meanwhile, I spent pleasant days about the island. Mr. Douglas, resident magistrate, 
invited me on a cruise in his steamer one day among the islands in Torres Strait. This being a scientific expedition in charge of Professor Mason Bailey, botanist, we rambled over Friday and Saturday islands, where I got a glimpse of botany. Miss Bailey, the professor's daughter, accompanied the expedition, and told me of many indigenous plants, with long names. The twenty-second was a great day on Thursday Island, for then we had not only the jubilee, but a jubilee with a grand corroboree in it. Mr. Douglas, having brought some four hundred native warriors and their wives and children across from the mainland to give the celebration the true native touch, for when they do a thing on Thursday Island, they do it with a roar. The corroboree was, at any rate, a howling success. It took place at night, and the performers painted in fantastic colours danced or leapt about before a blazing fire. Some were rigged and painted like birds and beasts, in which the emu and kangaroo were well represented. One fellow leapt like a frog. Some had the human skeleton painted on their bodies, while they jumped about threateningly, spear in hand, ready to strike down some imaginary enemy. The kangaroo hopped and danced with natural ease and grace, making a fine figure. All kept time to music, vocal and instrumental, the instruments, save the mark, being bits of wood, which they beat one against the other, and saucer-like bones held in the palms of the hands, which they knocked together, making a dull sound. It was a show at once amusing, spectacular, and hideous. The warrior aborigines that I saw in Queensland were for the most part lithe and fairly well built, but they were stamped always with repulsive features, and their women were, if possible, still more ill-favoured. I observed that on the day of the Jubilee no foreign flag was waving in the public grounds except the stars and stripes, which along with the Union Jack guarded the gateway, and floated in many places, from the tiniest to the standard size. Speaking to Mr. Douglas, I ventured a remark on this compliment to my country. "'Oh,' said he, "'this is a family affair, and we do not consider the stars and stripes a foreign flag.' The spray, of course, flew her best bunting, and hoisted the jack, as well as her own noble flag, as high as she could. On June 24, the spray, well fitted in every way, sailed for the long voyage ahead down the Indian Ocean. Mr. Douglas gave her a flag as she was leaving his island. The spray had now passed nearly all the dangers of the Coral Sea and Torres Strait, which indeed were not a few. And all ahead from this point was plain sailing and a straight course. The trade wind was still blowing fresh, and could be safely counted on now down to the coast of Madagascar, if not beyond that, for it was still early in the season. I had no wish to arrive off the Cape of Good Hope before midsummer, and it was now early winter. I had been off that Cape once in July, which was, of course, midwinter there. The stout ship I then commanded encountered only fierce hurricanes, and she bore them ill. I wished for no winter gales now. 
It was not that I feared them more, being in the spray, instead of a large ship, but that I preferred fine weather in any case. It is true that one may encounter heavy gales off the Cape of Good Hope at any season of the year, but in the summer they are less frequent, and do not continue so long. And so with time enough before me to admit of a run ashore on the islands en route, I shaped the course now for Keeling Cocos, Atoll Islands, distance twenty-seven hundred miles. Taking a departure now from Booby Island, which the sloop passed early in the day, I decided to sight Timor on the way, an island of great mountains. Booby Island I had seen before, but only once, however, and that was when in the steamship Suchet, on which I was hove down in a fever. When she steamed along this way, I was well enough to crawl on deck to look at Booby Island. Had I died for it, I would have seen that island. In those days passing ships landed stores in a cave on the island for shipwrecked and distressed wayfarers. Captain Airy of the Suchet, a good man, sent a boat to the cave with his contribution to the general store. The stores were landed in safety, and the boat returning brought back from the impoverished post-office there a dozen or more letters, most of them left by whalemen, with the request that the first homeward-bound ship would carry them along and see to their mailing, which had been the custom of this strange postal service for many years. Some of the letters brought back by our boat were directed to New Bedford, and some to Fairhaven, Massachusetts. There is a light to-day on Booby Island, and regular packet communication with the rest of the world, and the beautiful uncertainty of the fate of letters left there is a thing of the past. I made no call at the little island, but standing close in exchanged signals with the keeper of the light. Sailing on, the sloop was at once in the Arafura Sea, where for days she sailed in water milky white and green and purple. It was my good fortune to enter the sea on the last quarter of the moon, the advantage being that in the dark nights I witnessed the phosphorescent light effect at night in its greatest splendour. The sea where the sloop disturbed it seemed all ablaze, so that by its light I could see the smallest articles on deck, and her wake was a path of fire. On the 25th of June, the sloop was already clear of all the shoals and dangers, and was sailing on a smooth sea as steadily as before, but with speed somewhat slackened. I got out the flying jib made at Juan Fernandez, and set it as a spinnaker from the stoutest bamboo that Mrs. Stevenson had given me at Samoa. The spinnaker pulled like a sodger, and the bamboo holding its own, the spray mended her pace. Several pigeons flying across to-day from Australia towards the islands bent their course over the spray. Smaller birds were seen flying in the opposite direction. In the part of the Afura that I came to first, where it was shallow, sea-snakes writhed about on the surface and tumbled over and over in the waves. As the sloop sailed further on, where the sea became deep, they disappeared. In the ocean where the water is blue, not one was ever seen. 
In the days of serene weather there was not much to do but to read and take rest on the spray, to make up as much as possible for the rough time of Cape Horn, which was not yet forgotten, and to forestall the Cape of Good Hope by a store of ease. My sea-journal was now much the same from day to day. Something like this of June 26 and 27, for example. June 26, in the morning. It is a bit squally. Later in the day blowing a steady breeze. On the log at noon is 130 miles. Subtract, correction, for slip, 10 miles. Total, 120 miles. Add, correction, for current, 10 miles. Total, 130 miles. Latitude by observation at noon, 10 degrees, 23 minutes south. Longitude, as per mark on the chart. Now there wasn't much brain work in that log, I'm sure. June 27 makes a better showing when all is told. First of all today was a flying fish on deck, fried it in butter. 133 miles on the log, for slip, off, and for current, on, as per guess, about equal. Let it go at that. Latitude by observation at noon, 10 degrees, 25 minutes south. For several days now the spray sailed west on the parallel of 10 degrees, 25 minutes south, as true as a hare. If she deviated at all from that through the day or night, and this may have happened, she was back, strangely enough, at noon at the same latitude. But the greatest science was in reckoning the longitude. My tin clock and only timepiece had by this time lost its minute hand, but after I boiled her she told the hours, and that was near enough on a long stretch. On the 22nd of June the great island of Timor was in view away to the Norad. On the following day I saw Dana Island, not far off, and a breeze came up from the land at night, fragrant of the spices or what not of the coast. On the 11th, with all sail set and with the spinnaker still aboard, Christmas Island, about noon, came into view one point on the starboard bow. Before night it was a beam and distant two and a half miles. The surface of the island appeared evenly rounded from the sea to a considerable height in the centre. In outline it was as smooth as a fish, and a long ocean swell rolling up broke against the sides, where it lay like a monster asleep, motionless on the sea. It seemed to have the proportions of a whale, and as the sloop sailed along, its side to the part where the head would be, there was a nostril even, which was a blow-hole through a ledge of rock, where every wave that dashed threw up a shaft of water, lifelike and real. It had been a long time since I last saw this island, but I remember my temporary admiration for the captain of the ship I was then in, the Tanjore, when he sang out one morning from the quarter-deck, well aft, Go aloft there, one of ye, with a pair of eyes, and see Christmas Island. Sure enough, there the island was, in sight from the royal yard. Captain M. had thus made a great hit, and he never got over it. 
the chief mate terror of us ordinaries in the ship walking never to windward of the captain now took himself very humbly to leeward altogether when we arrived at hong kong there was a letter in the ship's mail for me i was in the boat with the captain some hours while he had it but do you suppose he could hand a letter to a seaman no indeed not even to an ordinary seaman when we got to the ship he gave it to the first mate the first mate gave it to the second mate and he laid it minchingly on the capstan head where i could get it end of chapter 15 read by alan chant in tunbridge kent england www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 16 of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 16, consisting of A Call for Careful Navigation. Three hours steering in twenty-three days. Arrival at the Keeling Cocos Islands. A curious chapter of social history. A welcome from the children of the islands. Cleaning and painting the spray on the beach. A Mohammedan blessing for a pot of jam. Keeling as a paradise. A risky adventure in a small boat. Away to Rodriguez. Taken for Antichrist. The Governor calms the fears of the people. A lecture. A convent in the hills. To the Keeling Cocos Islands was now only five hundred and fifty miles, but even in this short run it was necessary to be extremely careful in keeping a true course, else I would miss the atoll. On the twelfth, some hundred miles southwest of Christmas Island, I saw anti-cloud trades flying up from the southwest, very high over the regular winds, which weakened now for a few days, while a swell, heavier than usual, set in also from the southwest. A winter gale was going on in the direction of the Cape of Good Hope. Accordingly I steered higher to windward, allowing twenty miles a day while this went on for change of current and it was not too much, for on that course I made the Keeling Islands right ahead. The first unmistakable sign of the land was a visit one morning from a white tern that fluttered very knowingly about the vessel, and then took itself off westward with a business-like air in its wings. The tern is called by the islanders the pilot of Keeling Cocos. Farther on I came among a large number of birds, fishing and fighting over whatever they caught. My reckoning was up, and springing aloft I saw from halfway up the mast coconut trees standing out of the water ahead. I expected to see this. Still, it thrilled me as an electric shock might have done. 
I slid down the mast, trembling under the strangest sensations, and not being able to resist the impulse, I sat on deck and gave way to my emotions. To folks in a parlour on shore this may seem weak indeed, but I am telling the story of a voyage alone. I didn't touch the helm, for with the current and heave of the sea the sloop found herself at the end of the run absolutely in the fairway of the channel. You couldn't have beaten it in the navy. Then I trimmed her sails by the wind, took the helm, and flogged her up the couple of miles or so abreast the harbour landing, where I cast anchor at 3.30 p.m., July 17, 1897, twenty-three days from Thursday Island. The distance run was 2,700 miles as the crow flies. This would have been a fair Atlantic voyage. It was a delightful sail. During those twenty-three days I had not spent altogether more than three hours at the helm, including the time occupied in beating into Keeling Harbour. I just lashed the helm and let her go. Whether the wind was abeam or dead aft, it was all the same. She always sailed on her course. No part of the voyage up to this point, taking it by and large, had been so finished as this. Footnote Mr. Andrew J. Leach, reporting, July 21, 1897, through Governor Kinnersley of Singapore to Joseph Chamberlain, Colonial Secretary, said concerning the Ephigenia's visit to the atoll, As we left the ocean depths of deepest blue, and entered the coral circle, the contrast was most remarkable. The brilliant colours of the water, transparent to a depth of over thirty feet, now purple, now of the deepest sky-blue, and now green with the white crests of the waves flashing under a brilliant sun. The encircling palm-clad islands, the gaps between them which were to the south undiscernible, the white sand-shores and the whiter gaps where breakers appeared, and lastly the lagoon itself, seven or eight miles across from north to south, and five to six from east to west, presented a sight never to be forgotten. After some little delay, Mr. Sidney Ross, the elder son of Mr. George Ross, came off to meet us, and soon after, accompanied by the doctor and another officer, we went ashore. Footnote continues. On reaching the landing stage, we found hauled up for cleaning, etc., the spray of Boston, a yawl of 12.7 tons gross, the property of Captain Joshua Slocum. He arrived at the island on the 17th of July, twenty-three days out from Thursday Island. This extraordinary solitary traveller left Boston some two years ago, single-handed, crossed to Gibraltar, sailed down to Cape Horn, passed through the Strait of Magellan to the Society Islands, thence to Australia and through the Torres Strait to Thursday Island. End of footnote. The Keeling Cocos Islands, according to Admiral Fitzroy R.N., lie between the latitudes of 11 degrees 50 minutes and 12 degrees 12 minutes south, and the longitudes of 96 degrees 51 minutes and 96 degrees 58 minutes east. They were discovered in 1608 to 1609 by Captain William Keeling, then in the service of the East India Company. 
The southern group consists of seven or eight islands and islets on the atoll, which is the skeleton of what some day, according to the history of coral reefs, will be a continuous island. North Keeling has no harbour, is seldom visited, and is of no importance. The South Keelings are a strange little world, with a romantic history all their own. They have been visited occasionally by the floating spar of some hurricane-swept ship, or by a tree that has drifted all the way from Australia, or by an ill-starred ship cast away, and finally, by man. Even a rock once drifted to Keeling, held fast among the roots of a tree. After the discovery of the islands by Captain Keeling, their first notable visitor was Captain John Clunnis Ross, who in 1814 touched in the ship Borneo on a voyage to India. Captain Ross returned two years later with his wife and family and his mother-in-law, Mrs. Dymoak, and eight sailor artisans to take possession of the islands, but found there already one Alexander Hare, who meanwhile had marked the little atoll as a sort of Eden for a seraglio of Malay women which he moved over from the coast of Africa. It was Ross's own brother, oddly enough, who freighted Hare and his crowd of women to the islands, not knowing of Captain John's plans to occupy the little world. And so Hare was there with his outfit, as if he had come to stay. On his previous visit, however, Ross had nailed the English jack to a mast on Horsburg Island, one of the group. After two years shreds of it still fluttered in the wind, and his sailors, nothing loath, began at once the invasion of the new kingdom to take possession of it, women and all. The force of forty women, with only one man to command them, was not equal to driving eight sturdy sailors back into the sea. Footnote. In the accounts given in Findlay's sailing directory of some of the events there is a chronological discrepancy. I follow the accounts gathered from the old captain's grandsons and from records on the spot. End of footnote. From this time on Hare had a hard time of it. He and Ross did not get on well as neighbours. The islands were too small and too near for characters so widely different. Hare had oceans of money, and might have lived well in London. But he had been governor of a wild colony in Borneo, and could not confine himself to the tame life that prosy civilization affords and so he hung on to the atoll with his forty women, retreating little by little before Ross and his sturdy crew, till at last he found himself and his harem on the little island known to this day as Prison Island, where, like Bluebeard, he confined his wives in a castle. The channel between the islands was narrow, the water was not deep, and the eight Scotch sailors wore long boots. Hare was now dismayed. He tried to compromise with rum and other luxuries, but these things only made matters worse. On the day following the first St. Andrew's celebration on the island, Hare, consumed with rage, and no longer on speaking terms with the captain, dashed off a note to him, saying, "'Dear Ross, I thought when I sent rum and roast pig to your sailors that they would stay away from my flower-garden.' in reply to which the captain, burning with indignation, shouted from the centre of the island where he stood, 
Ahoy there, on Prison Island! You hare, don't you know that rum and roast pig are not a sailor's heaven? Hare said afterwards that one might have heard the captain's roar across to Java. The lawless establishment was soon broken up by the women deserting Prison Island and putting themselves under Ross's protection. Hare then went to Batavia, where he met his death. My first impression on landing was that the crime of infanticide had not reached the islands of Keelingcocus. The children have all come to welcome you, explained Mr. Ross, and they mustered at the jetty by hundreds, of all ages and sizes. The people of this country were all rather shy, but, young or old, they never passed one or saw one passing their door without a salutation. In their musical voices they would say, Are you walking? Halan, halan. Will you come along? One would answer. For a long time after I arrived, the children regarded the one-man ship with suspicion and fear. A native man had been blown away to sea many years before, and they hinted to one another that he might have been changed from black to white and returned in the sloop. For some time every movement I made was closely watched. They were particularly interested in what I ate. One day, after I had been boot-topping the sloop with a composition of coal-tar and other stuff, and while I was taking my dinner with the luxury of blackberry jam, I heard a commotion, and then a yell and a stampede, and the children ran away yelling, "'The captain is eating coal-tar! The captain is eating coal-tar!' But they soon found out that this same coal-tar was very good to eat, and that I had brought a quantity of it. One day, when I was spreading a sea-biscuit thick with it for a wide-awake youngster, I heard them whisper, "'Shut, shut!' meaning that a shark had bitten my hand, which they observed was lame. Thenceforth they regarded me as a hero and I had not fingers enough for the little bright-eyed tots that wanted to cling to them and follow me about. Before this, when I held out my hand and said, Come, they would shy off for the nearest house, and say, Ding-jing, it's cold, or Ujan, it's going to rain. But it was now accepted that I was not the returned spirit of the lost black, and I had plenty of friends about the island, rain or shine. One day after this, when I tried to haul the sloop, and found her fast in the sand, the children all clapped their hands, and cried that a pting, or crab, was holding her by the keel. And little Ophelia, ten or twelve years of age, wrote in the spray's log-book, A hundred men, with might and main, on the windlace, hove, yea ho! The cable only came in twain, the ship she would not go. For child to tell the strangest thing, the keel was held by a great pting. This being so, or not, it was decided that the Mohammedan priest, Sama the Emim, for a pot of jam, should ask Mohammed to bless the voyage and make the crab let go the sloop's keel, which it did, if it had hold, and she floated on the very next tide. On the 22nd of July arrived HMS Iphigenia with Mr. Justice Andrew L. Leach, and court officers on board. 
on a circuit of inspection among the straight settlements of which Keeling Cocos was a dependency, to hear complaints and try cases by law, if any there were to try. They found the spray hauled ashore and tied to a coconut tree. But at the Keeling Islands there had not been a grievance to complain of since the day that hare migrated, for the Rosses have always treated the islanders as their own family. If there is a paradise on earth, it is Keeling. There was not a case for a lawyer, but something had to be done, for here were two ships in port, a great man-of-war and the spray. Instead of a lawsuit, a dance was got up, and all the officers who could leave their ship came ashore. Everybody on the island came, old and young, and the governor's great hall was filled with people. All that could get on their feet danced, while the babies lay in heaps in the corners of the room, content to look on. My little friend Ophelia danced with the judge. For music two fiddles screeched over and over again the good old tune, We won't go home till morning, and we did not. The women in the Keelings do not do all the drudgery, as in many places visited on the voyage. It would cheer the heart of a Fuegian woman to see the Keeling lord of creation up a coconut tree. Besides cleverly climbing the trees, the men of Keeling build exquisitely modelled canoes. By far the best workmanship in boat-building I saw on the voyages was here. Many finished mechanics dwelt under the palms at Keeling, and the hum of the bandsaw and the ring of the anvil were heard from morning till night. The first Scotch settlers left there the strength of northern blood, and the inheritance of steady habits. No benevolent society has ever done so much for the islanders as the noble Captain Ross and his sons, who have followed his example of industry and thrift. Admiral Fitzroy of the Beagle, who visited here where many things are reversed, spoke of these singular though small islands, where crabs eat coconuts, fish eat coral, Dogs catch fish, men ride on turtles, and shells are dangerous man-traps, adding that the greater part of the sea-fowl roost on branches, and many rats make their nests in the tops of palm-trees. My vessel being refitted, I decided to load her with the famous mammoth Tradactor shell of Keeling, found in the bayou nearby, and right here within sight of the village I came near losing the crew of the spray. Not from putting my foot in a man-trap shell, however, but from carelessly neglecting to look after the details of a trip across the harbour in a boat. I had sailed over oceans. I have since completed a course over them all, and sailed round the whole world without so nearly meeting a fatality as on that trip across a lagoon, where I trusted all to someone else, and he, weak mortal that he was, perhaps trusted all to me. However that may be, I found myself with a thoughtless African negro in a rickety bateau that was fitted with a rotten sail, and this blew away in mid-channel in a squall that sent us drifting helplessly to sea, where we should have been incontinently lost. With the whole ocean before us to leeward, I was dismayed to see while we drifted that there was not a paddle or an oar in the boat. There was an anchor, to be sure, but not enough rope to tie a cat, and we were already in deep water. 
By great good fortune, however, there was a pole. Plying this as a paddle with the utmost energy, and by the merest accidental flaw in the wind to favour us, the trap of the boat was worked into shoal water, where we could touch bottom and push her ashore. With Africa, the nearest coast to leeward three thousand miles away, with not so much as a drop of water in the boat, and a lean and hungry negro, well, cast the lot as one might, the crew of the spray in a little while would have been hard to find. It is needless to say that I took no more such chances. The Tridacna were afterwards procured in a safe boat, thirty of them taking the place of three tons of cement ballast, which I threw overboard to make room and give buoyancy. On August 22, the Pating, or whatever else it was, that held the sloop in the islands, let go its hold, and she swung out to sea under all sail, heading again for home. Mounting one or two heavy rollers on the fringe of the atoll, she cleared the flashing reefs. Long before dark keeling cocos, with its thousand souls as sinless in their lives as perhaps it is possible for frame mortals to be, was left out of sight astern. Out of sight, I say, except in my strongest affection. The sea was rugged, and the spray washed heavily when hauled on the wind, which course I took for the island of Rodriguez, and which brought the sea abeam. The true course for the island was west by south, one quarter south, and the distance was nineteen hundred miles. But I steered considerably to the windward of that, to allow for the heave of the sea and other leeward effects. My sloop on this course ran under reefed sails for days together. I naturally tired of the never-ending motion of the sea, and above all of the wetting I got whenever I showed myself on deck. Under these heavy weather conditions the spray seemed to lay behind on her course, at least I attributed to these conditions a discrepancy in the log, which, by the fifteenth day out from Keeling, amounted to one hundred and fifty miles between the rotator and the mental calculations I had kept of what she should have gone. And so I kept an eye lifting for land. I could see about sundown this day a bunch of clouds that stood in one spot right ahead, while the other clouds floated on. This was a sign of something. By midnight, as the sloop sailed on, a black object appeared where I had seen the resting clouds. It was still a long way off, but there could be no mistaking this. It was the high island of Rodriguez. I hauled in the patent log, which I was now towing more from habit than from necessity, for I had learned the spray and her ways long before this. If one thing were clearer than another in her voyage, it was that she could be trusted to come out right and in safety, though at the same time I always stood ready to give her the benefit of even the least doubt. The officers who are over sure and know it all like a book are the ones I have observed who wreck the most ships and lose the most lives. The cause of the discrepancy in the log was one often met with, namely, coming into contact with some large fish, two out of the four blades of the rotator were crushed or bent, the work probably of a shark. Being sure of the sloop's position, I lay down to rest and to think, and I felt better for it.
By daylight the island was a beam about three miles away. It wore a hard, weather-beaten appearance there, all alone, far out in the Indian Ocean, like land adrift. The windward side was uninviting, but there was a good port to leeward, and I hauled in now, close on the wind for that. A pilot came out to take me into the inner harbour, which was reached through a narrow channel among coral reefs. It was a curious thing that at all of the islands some reality was insisted on as unreal, while improbabilities were clothed as hard facts. And so it happened here that the good abbe, a few days before, had been telling his people about the coming of Antichrist. And when they saw the spray sail into the harbour, all feather-white before a gale of wind, and run all standing upon the beach, and with only one man aboard, they cried, May the Lord help us! It is he, and he has come in a boat! Which I say would have been the most improbable way of his coming. Nevertheless, the news went flying through the place. The governor of the island, Mr. Roberts, came down immediately to see what it was all about, for the little town was in a great commotion. One elderly woman, when she heard of my advent, made for her house and locked herself in. When she heard that I was actually coming up the street, she barricaded her doors and did not come out while I was on the island, a period of eight days. Governor Roberts and his family did not share the fears of their people, but came on board at the jetty where the sloop was berthed, and their example induced others to come also. The governor's young boys took charge of the spray's dinghy at once, and my visit cost His Excellency, besides great hospitality to me, the building of a boat for them, like the one belonging to the spray. My first day in this land of promise was to me like a fairy tale. For many days I had studied the charts, and counted the time of my arrival at this spot as one might his entrance to the islands of the blessed, looking upon it as the terminus of the last long run, made irksome by the want of many things with which, from this time on, I could keep well supplied. And, behold, here saw the sloop arrived, and made securely fast to a pier in Rodriguez. On the first evening ashore, in the land of napkins and cut glass, I saw before me still the ghosts of hempen towels and mugs with handles knocked off. Instead of tossing on the sea, however, as I might have been, here was I in a bright hall, surrounded by sparkling wit, and dining with the governor of the island. Aladdin, I cried, where is your lamp? My fisherman's lantern, which I got at Gloucester, has shown me better things than your smoky old burner ever revealed. The second day in port was spent in receiving visitors. Mrs. Roberts and her children came first to shake hands, they said, with the spray. No one was now afraid to come on board, except the poor old woman, who still maintained that the spray had Antichrist in the hold, if, indeed, he had not already gone ashore. The governor entertained that evening, and kindly invited the destroyer of the world to speak for himself. This he did, elaborating most effusively on the dangers of the sea, which, after the manner of many of our frailest mortals, he would have had smooth had he made it. Also by contrivances of light and darkness he exhibited on the wall pictures of the places and countries visited on the voyage, 
nothing like the countries, however, that he would have made, and of the people seen, savage and other, frequently groaning, Wicked world! Wicked world! When this was finished, His Excellency the Governor, speaking words of thankfulness, distributed pieces of gold. On the following day I accompanied His Excellency and family on a visit to San Gabriel, which was up the country among the hills. The good abbe of San Gabriel entertained us all royally at the convent, and we remained his guests until the following day. As I was leaving his place, the abbe said, Captain, I embrace you, and of whatever religion you may be, my wish is that you succeed in making your voyage, and that our Saviour the Christ be always with you. To this good man's words I could only say, My dear abbe, had all religionists been so liberal, there would have been less bloodshed in the world. At Rodriguez one may now find every convenience for filling pure and wholesome water in any quantity, Governor Roberts having built a reservoir in the hills above the village, and laid pipes to the jetty where, at the time of my visit, there were five and a half feet at high tide. In former years well water was used, and more or less sickness occurred from it. Beef may be had in any quantity on the island, and at a moderate price. Sweet potatoes were plentiful and cheap. The large sack of them that I bought there for about four shillings kept unusually well. I simply stored them in the sloop's dry hold. Of fruits, pomegranates were the most plentiful. For two shillings I obtained a large sack of them, as many as a donkey could pack from the orchard, which, by the way, was planted by nature herself. End of chapter 16 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England Chapter 17 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 17 Consisting of A Clean Bill of Health at Mauritius Sailing the Voyage Over Again in the Opera House A Newly Discovered Plant Named in Honour of the Spray's Skipper A Party of Young Ladies Out for a Sail a bivouac on deck, a warm reception at Durban, a friendly cross-examination by Henry M. Stanley, three wise boars seek proof of the flatness of the earth, leaving South Africa. On the 16th of September, after eight restful days at Rodriguez, the mid-ocean land of plenty, I set sail, and on the 19th arrived at Mauritius, anchoring at quarantine about noon. The sloop was towed in later on the same day by the doctor's launch, after he was satisfied that I had mustered all the crew for inspection. Of this he seemed in doubt, until he examined the papers, which called for a crew of one all told, from port to port throughout the voyage. Then, finding that I had been well enough to come thus far alone, 
he gave me practique without further ado. There was still another official visit for the spray to pass farther in the harbour. The governor of Rodriguez, who had most kindly given me, besides a regular mail, private letters of introduction to friends, told me I should meet, first of all, Mr. Jenkins of the Postal Service, a good man. "'How do you do, Mr. Jenkins?' cried I, as his boat swung alongside. "'You don't know me?' he said. "'Why not?' I replied. "'From where is the sloop?' "'From around the world,' I again replied, very solemnly. "'And alone?' "'Yes. Why not?' "'And do you know me?' Three thousand years ago,' cried I, "'when you and I had a warmer job than we have now.' Even this was hot. "'You were then Jenkinson, but if you have changed your name, I don't blame you for that.' Mr. Jenkins, forbearing soul, entered into the spirit of the jest, which served the spray a good turn, for on the strength of this tale it got out that if any one should go on board after dark, the devil would get him at once. And so I could leave the spray without the fear of her being robbed at night. The cabin, to be sure, was broken into, but it was done in daylight, and the thieves got no more than a box of smoked herrings before Tom Ledson, one of the port officials, caught them red-handed, as it were, and sent them to jail. This was discouraging to pilferers, for they feared Ledson more than they feared Satan himself. Even Mahmoud Haji Ayub, who was the day watchman on board, till an empty box fell over in the cabin and frightened him out of his wits, could not be hired to watch nights, or even till the sun went down. Saib, he cried, there is no need of it. And what he said was perfectly true. At Mauritius, where I drew a long breath, the spray rested her wings, it being the season of fine weather. The hardships of the voyage, if there had been any, were now computed by officers of experience as nine-tenths finished. And yet somehow, I could not forget that the United States was still a long way off. The kind people of Mauritius, to make me richer and happier, rigged up the opera house which they had named the ship Pantei. Footnote, Guinea Hen. All decks and no bottom was this ship, but she was as stiff as a church. They gave me free use of it while I talked over the spray's adventures. His Honour the Mayor introduced me to His Excellency the Governor from the poop-deck of the Pantei. In this way I was also introduced again to our good consul, General John P. Campbell, who had already introduced me to His Excellency. I was becoming well acquainted, and was in for it now to sail the voyage over again. How I got through the story I hardly know. It was a hot night and I could have choked the tailor who made the coat I wore for this occasion. The kind governor saw that I had done my part trying to rig like a man ashore, and he invited me to Government House at Redouit, where I found myself among friends. It was winter still off stormy Cape of Good Hope, but the storms might whistle there. I determined to see it out in the milder Mauritius, visiting Rose Hill, Curipepe, and other places on the island. I spent a day with the elder Mr. Roberts, father of Governor Roberts of Rodriguez, and with his friends the very reverend fathers O'Loughlin and McCarthy. 
Returning to the spray by way of the great flower conservatory near Mocha, the proprietor, having only that morning discovered a new and hardy plant, to my great honour named it Slocum, which, he said, latinized it at once, saving him some trouble on the twist of a word. And the good botanist seemed pleased that I had come. How different things are in different countries! In Boston, Massachusetts, at that time, a gentleman, so I was told, paid thirty thousand dollars to have a flower named after his wife. And it was not a big flower, either, while Slocum, which came without the asking, was bigger than a mangle-wurzel. I was royally entertained at Mocha, as well as Reduid, and other places. Once by seven young ladies, to whom I spoke of my inability to return their hospitality, except in my own poor way of taking them on a sail in the sloop. "'The very thing! The very thing!' they all cried. "'Then please name the time,' I said, as meek as Moses. "'Tomorrow!' they all cried. "'And, Auntie, we may go, mayn't we? And we'll be real good for a whole week afterwards, Auntie. Say yes, Auntie dear!' All this after saying to-morrow, for girls in Mauritius are, after all, the same as our girls in America, and their dear aunt said, Me too, about the same as any really good aunt might say in my own country. I was then in a quandary, it having recurred to me that on the very to-morrow I was to dine with the harbour-master, Captain Wilson. However, I said to myself, The spray will run out quickly into rough seas, these young ladies will have mal de mer, and a good time, and I'll get in early enough to be at the dinner after all. But not a bit of it. We sailed almost out of sight of Mauritius, and they just stood up and laughed at seas tumbling aboard, while I was at the helm making the worst weather of it I could, and spinning yarns to the aunt about sea serpents and whales. But she, dear lady, when I had finished with stories of monsters, only hinted at a basket of provisions they had brought along, enough to last a week, for I had told them about my wretched steward. The more the spray tried to make these young ladies seasick, the more they all clapped hands and said, How lovely it is! and How beautifully she skims over the sea! and How beautiful our island appears from the distance! And they still cried, Go on! We were fifteen miles or more at sea before they ceased the eager cry, Go on! Then the sloop swung round. I was still hoping to be back at Port Louis in time to keep my appointment. The spray reached the island quickly, and flew along the coast fast enough, but I made a mistake in steering along the coast on the way home, for as we came abreast of Tombow Bay it enchanted my crew. Oh, let's anchor here! they cried. To this no sailor in the world would have said nay. The sloop came to anchor ten minutes later, as they wished, and a young man on the cliff abreast, waving his hat, cried, Vive la spray! My passengers said, Auntie, mayn't we have a swim in the surf along the shore? Just then the harbour-master's launch hove in sight, coming out to meet us. But it was too late to get the sloop into Port Louis that night. The launch was in time, however, to land my fair crew for a swim. But they were determined not to desert the ship. Meanwhile I prepared a roof for the night on deck with the sails, and a Bengali manservant arranged the evening meal. That night the spray rode in Tombow Bay with her precious freight. 
Next morning, bright and early, even before the stars were gone, I awoke to hear praying on deck. The port officer's launch reappeared later in the morning, this time with Captain Wilson himself on board, to try his luck at getting the spray into port, for he had heard of our predicament. It was worth something to hear a friend tell afterwards how earnestly the good harbour-master of Mauritius said, "'I'll find the spray and get her into port.' A merry crew he discovered on her. They could hoist sails like old tars, and could trim them too. They could tell all about the ship's hoods, and one should have seen them clap a bonnet on the jib. Like the deepest of deep-water sailors, they could heave the lead, and, as I hoped to see Mauritius again, any of them could have put the ship in stays. No ship ever had a fairer crew. The voyage was the event of Port Louis. Such a thing as young ladies sailing about the harbour, even, was almost unheard of before. While at Mauritius the spray was tendered the use of the military dock free of charge, and was thoroughly refitted by the port authorities. My sincere gratitude is also due other friends for many things needful for the voyage put on board, including bags of sugar from some of the famous old plantations. The favourable season now set in, and thus well equipped, on the 26th of October the spray put to sea. As I sailed before a light wind, the island receded slowly, and on the following day I could still see the Puce Mountain near Mocha. The spray arrived next day, off Gallet's reunion, and a pilot came out and spoke to her. I handed him a Mauritius paper and continued on my voyage, for rollers were running heavily at the time, and it was not practicable to make a landing. From reunion I shaped a course direct for Cape St. Mary, Madagascar. The sloop was now drawing near the limits of the trade wind, and the strong breeze that had carried her with free sheets the many thousands of miles from Sandy Cape, Australia, fell lighter each day, until October 30, when it was altogether calm, and a motionless sea held her in a hushed world. I furled the sails at evening, sat down on deck, and enjoyed the vast stillness of the night. October 31, a light east-northeast breeze sprang up, and the sloop passed Cape St. Mary about noon. On the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th of November, in the Mozambique Channel, she experienced a hard gale of wind from the southwest. Here the spray suffered as much as she did elsewhere, except off Cape Horn. The thunder and lightning preceding this gale were very heavy. From this point until the sloop arrived off the coast of Africa, she encountered a succession of gales of wind which drove her about in many directions, but on the 17th of November she arrived at Port Natal. This delightful place is the commercial centre of the Garden Colony, Durban itself, the city, being the continuation of a garden. The signalman from the bluff station reported the spray fifteen miles off, the wind was freshening, and when she was within eight miles, he said, The spray is shortening sail. The mainsail was reefed and set in ten minutes. One man is doing all the work. This item of news was printed three minutes later in a Durban morning journal, which was handed to me when I arrived in port. 
I could not verify the time it had taken to reef the sail, for, as I have already said, the minute hand of my timepiece was gone. I only knew that I reefed as quickly as I could. The same paper, commenting on the voyage, said, Judging from the stormy weather which has prevailed off this coast during the past few weeks, the spray must have had a very stormy voyage from Mauritius to Natal. Doubtless the weather would have been called stormy by sailors in any ship, but it caused the spray no more inconvenience than the delay natural to headwinds generally. The question of how I sailed the sloop alone, often asked, is best answered, perhaps, by a Durban newspaper. I would shrink from repeating the editor's words, but for the reason that undue estimates have been made of the amount of skill and energy required to sail a sloop of even the spray's small tonnage. I heard a man who called himself a sailor say that it would require three men to do what it was claimed that I did alone, and what I found perfectly easy to do over and over again. And I have heard that others made similar nonsensical remarks, adding that I would work myself to death. But here is what the Durban paper said. As briefly noted yesterday, the spray with a crew of one man arrived at this port yesterday afternoon on her cruise round the world. The spray made quite an auspicious entrance to Natal. Her commander sailed his craft right up the channel past the main wharf and dropped his anchor near the old forerunner in the creek before anyone had a chance to get on board. The spray was naturally an object of great curiosity to the point people and her arrival was witnessed by a large crowd. The skilful manner in which Captain Slocum steered his craft about the vessels which were occupying the waterway was a treat to witness. The spray was not sailing in among greenhorns when she came to Natal. When she arrived off the port, the pilot-ship, a fine able steam-tug, came out to meet her, and led the way in across the bar, for it was blowing a smart gale, and was too rough for the sloop to be towed with safety. The trick of going in I learned by watching the steamer. It was simply to keep on the windward side of the channel, and take the comers end on. I found that Durban supported two yacht-clubs, both of them full of enterprise. I met all the members of both clubs, and sailed in the crack-yacht Florence of the Royal Natal, with Captain Spradbrow and the Right Honourable Harry Escombe, Premier of the Colony. The yacht's centreboard ploughed furrows through the mud-banks, which, according to Mr. Escombe, Spradbrow afterwards planted with potatoes. The Florence, however, won races while she tilled the skipper's land. After our sail on the Florence, Mr. Escombe offered to sail the spray round the Cape of Good Hope for me, and hinted at his famous cribbage-board to while away the hours. Spradbrow, in retort, warned me of it, said he, you would be played out of the sloop before you could round the Cape. By others it was not thought probable that the Premier of Natal would play cribbage off the Cape of Good Hope to win even the spray. It was a matter of no small pride to me in South Africa to find that American humour was never at a discount, and one of the best American stories I ever heard was told by the Premier. At Hotel Royal one day, Dining with Colonel Sanderson, M.P., his son, and Lieutenant Tipping, I met Mr. Stanley. The great explorer was just from Pretoria, 
and had already as good as flayed President Kruger with his trenchant pen. But that did not signify, for everybody has a whack at Umpool, and no one in the world seems to stand the joke better than he, not even the Sultan of Turkey himself. The Colonel introduced me to the explorer, and I hauled close to the wind to go slow, for Mr. Stanley was a nautical man once himself, on the Nyanza, I think, and of course my desire was to appear in the best light before a man of his experience. He looked me over carefully and said, What an example of patience! Patience is all that is required, I ventured to reply. He then asked if my vessel had watertight compartments. I explained that she was all watertight and all compartment. What if she should strike a rock, he said. Compartments would not save her if she should hit rocks lying along her course, said I, adding, she must be kept away from the rocks. After a considerable pause, Mr. Stanley asked, What if a swordfish should pierce her hull with its sword? Of course I had thought of that as one of the dangers of the sea, and also of the chance of being struck by lightning. In the case of the swordfish I ventured to say that the first thing would be to secure the sword. The Colonel invited me to dine with the party on the following day, that we might go further into this matter, and so I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Stanley a second time, but got no more hints in navigation from the famous explorer. It sounds odd to hear scholars and statesmen say the world is flat, but it is a fact that three Boers, favoured by the opinion of President Kruger, prepared a work to support that contention. While I was at Durban, they came from Pretoria to obtain data from me, and they seemed annoyed when I told them that they could not prove it by my experience. With the advice to call up some ghost of the Dark Ages for research, I went ashore, and left these three wise men poring over the spray's track on a chart of the world, which, however, proved nothing to them, for it was on Mercator's projection, and, behold, it was flat. The next morning I met one of the party in a clergyman's garb, carrying a large Bible, not different from the one I had read. He tackled me, saying, If you respect the word of God, you must admit that the world is flat. If the word of God stands on a flat world, I began, What? cried he, losing himself in a passion, and making as if he would run me through with an assegai. What? he shouted in astonishment and rage, while I jumped aside to dodge the imaginary weapon. Had this good but misguided fanatic been armed with a real weapon, the crew of the spray would have died a martyr there and then. The next day, seeing him across the street, I bowed and made curves with my hand. He responded with a level swimming movement of his hands, meaning the world is flat. A pamphlet by these Transvaal geographers, made up of arguments from sources high and low to prove their theory, was mailed to me before I sailed from Africa on my last stretch around the globe. While I feebly portray the ignorance of these learned men, I have great admiration for their physical manhood. Much that I saw first and last of the Transvaal and the Boers was admirable. It is well known that they are the hardest of fighters, and as generous to the fallen as they are brave before the foe. 
real stubborn bigotry with them is only found among old fogies, and will die a natural death, and that too perhaps long before we ourselves are entirely free from bigotry. Education in the Transvaal is by no means neglected. English as well as Dutch is taught to all that can afford both, but the tariff duty on English school books is heavy, and from necessity the poorer people stick to the Transvaal Dutch and their flat world, just as in Samoa and other islands a mistaken policy has kept the natives down to Kanaka. I visited many public schools in Durban, and had the pleasure of meeting many bright children. But all fine things must end, and December 14, 1897, the crew of the spray, after having a fine time in Natal, swung the sloop's dinghy in on deck, and sailed with a morning land-wind, which carried her clear of the bar, and again she was off on her alone, as they say in Australia. End of chapter 17 Read by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk